Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about how Jack London learned to surf in Hawaii, how he discovered surfing when he was traveling to Hawaii on his yacht, the Snark, in 1906, 1907. I don't know the exact year. It's either 1906 or 1907. He built the yacht in 1906, and I assume that he got to Hawaii in that same year. I think he did. But there's a very interesting chapter in his book, The Cruise of the Snark, and this chapter is entitled, A Royal Sport. A Royal Sport. And he's talking about surfing. And you know, this is interesting to me. Even for someone who has never surfed, I have no experience with surfing. But it's interesting to me because I know many guys have and are enthusiastic about it. And I know <laughs> I know my friend the G Manifesto is a, is a, is a big fan of it. So uh, I wanted to do this podcast as a way of maybe exciting some historical interest in the sport because I don't think I've ever read or heard of any any original accounts from that far back. We're talking 1906-1907. And what's interesting about this is it really is describing the sport when probably very few people in America had, had even heard of it. You know, my understanding is that it's a Polynesian sport, may even may even be a Hawaiian sport. I don't know if it was invented there or in some other oceanic islands. Who knows? Um but it's very interesting, I think, just from a historical perspective. So what I'm going to do in this podcast is read a few selections from his chapter of Royal Sport, which I'm sure you'll find interesting. And you can weigh it and discuss it and think about it. Now, before I do that, uh, there's some there's some terms that he uses in the chapter that I want to make sure people understand. The word kanaka is a word that he uses, and that's a Hawaiian word for a native-born Hawaiian. And I had heard this word before. I, I remember in, in um, uh, Richard Henry Dana's uh, Two Years Before the Mast, uh, a, um, a novel, well, uh, an account of an early American's experience in the, the Merchant Marine. It was written in the 1840s, and he had traveled to, to Hawaii during this time, and he used he records the use of the word kanaka as a a word for native-born Hawaiians. I don't know if it's still used anymore. I I can't remember ever seeing it when I was in Hawaii. Maybe it's maybe it's considered an obsolete word. It's out of out of fashion. But in any case, I just wanted to explain that when people hear it read, they'll know what uh, what it means. So let me read this uh, read this chapter. And in, in this, uh, the selection I'm going to read here, Jack London talks about how he first observed a surfer when he was sitting on the shore at Waikiki Beach in Honolulu. And then how he learned himself. And what's what's very nice about this passage is he uses his, his, his formidable powers of description and really gives us a very nice picture of what surfing is felt like. And so I'll let you be the judge of that here as I read this. So this is this is Jack London, a royal sport. 
And one sits and listens to the perpetual roar and watches the unending procession and feels tiny and fragile before the tremendous force expressing itself in fury and foam and sound. Indeed, one feels microscopically small and the thought that one may wrestle with this sea raises in one's imagination a thrill of apprehension, almost of fear. Why, they are a mile long, these bull-mouthed monsters, and they weigh a thousand tons, and they charge into shore faster than a man can run. What chance? No chance at all is the verdict of the shrinking ego, and one sits and looks and listens and thinks the grass and the shade are a pretty good place in which to be. And suddenly... Out there where a big smoker lifts skyward, rising like a sea god from out of the welter of spume and churning white, on the giddy, toppling, overhanging, and downfalling, precarious crest appears the dark head of a man. Swiftly he rises through the rushing white. His black shoulders, his chest, his loins, his limbs, all is abruptly projected onto one's vision. Where but the moment before was only the wide desolation and invincible roar is now a man, erect, fully statured, not struggling frantically in that wild moment, not buried and crushed and buffeted by those mighty monsters, but standing above them all, calm and superb, poised on the giddy summit, his feet buried in the churning foam, the salt smoke rising to his knees, and all the rest of him in the free air and flashing sunlight, and he is flying through the air, flying forward, flying fast as the surge on which he stands. He is a mercury, a brown mercury. His heels are winged, and in them is the swiftness of the sea. In truth, from out of the sea he has leaped upon the back of the sea, and he is riding the sea that roars and bellows and cannot shake him from its back. But no frantic outreaching and balancing is his. He is impassive, motionless as a statue carved suddenly by some miracle out of the sea's depth from which he rose. And straight on toward shore he flies on his winged heels and the white crest of the breaker. There is a wild burst of foam, a long tumultuous rushing sound as the breaker falls futile and spent on the beach at your feet. And there, at your feet, steps calmly ashore a kanaka, burnt, golden, and brown by the tropic sun. Several minutes ago, he was a speck a quarter of a mile away. He has bitted the bull-mouthed breaker and ridden in it, and the pride in the feet shows in the carriage of his magnificent body as he glances for a moment carelessly at you who sit in the shade of the shore. He is a kanaka, and more, he is a man, a member of the kingly species that has mastered matter and the brutes and lorded it over creation." And that is how it came about that I tackled surf-riding. And now that I have tackled it, more than ever do I hold it to be a royal sport. But first, let me explain the physics of it. A wave is a communicated agitation. The water that composes the body of a wave does not move. If it did, when a stone is thrown into a pond and the ripples spread away in an ever-widening circle, there would appear at the center an ever-increasing hole. No, the water that composes the body of a wave is stationary. Thus, you may watch a particular portion of the ocean's surface and you will see that the sane water rise and fall a thousand times to the agitation communicated by a thousand successive waves. 
Now, imagine this communicated agitation moving shoreward. As the bottom shoals, the lower portion of the wave strikes land first and is stopped. But water is fluid, and the upper portion has not struck anything. Wherefore, it keeps on communicating its agitation, keeps on going. And when the top of the wave keeps on going, while the bottom of it lags behind, something is bound to happen. The bottom of the wave drops out from under, and the top of the wave falls forward, forward and down, curling and cresting and roaring as it does so. It is the bottom of a wave striking against the top of the land that is the cause of all surfs. But the transformation from a smooth undulation to a breaker is not abrupt except where the bottom shoals abruptly. Say the bottom shoals gradually, for from a quarter of a mile to a, to a mile, then an equal distance will be occupied by the transformation. Such a bottom is that off the beach of Waikiki, and it produces a splendid surf-riding surf. One leaps upon the back of a breaker just as it begins to break and stays on it as it continues to break all the way into shore. And now to the particular physics of surf riding. Get out on a flat board, six feet long, two feet wide, and roughly oval in shape. Lie down upon it like a small boy on a coaster and paddle with your hands out to deep water where the waves begin to crest. Lie out there quietly on the board. Sea after sea breaks before, behind, and under and over you, and rushes into shore, leaving you behind. When a wave crests, it gets steeper. Imagine yourself on your board, on the face of that steep slope. If it stood still, you would slide down just as a boy slides down a hill on his coaster. But, you object, the wave doesn't stand still. Very true, but the water composing the wave stands still, and there you have the secret. If ever you start sliding down the face of that wave, you'll keep on sliding and you'll never reach the bottom. Please don't laugh. The face of that wave may be only six feet, yet you can slide down it to a quarter of a mile or half a mile and not reach the bottom. For, see, since a wave is only a communicated agitation or impetus, and since the water that composes a wave is changing every instant, the new water is rising into the wave as fast as the wave travels. You slide down this new water, and yet remain in your old position on the wave, sliding down the still newer water that is rising and forming the wave. You slide precisely as fast as the wave travels. If it travels 15 miles an hour, you slide 15 miles an hour. Between you and shore stretches a quarter of a mile of water. As the wave travels, this water obligingly heaps itself into the wave, gravity does the rest, and down you go, sliding the whole length of it. If you still cherish the notion, while sliding, that the water is moving with you, thrust your arms into it and attempt to paddle. You will find that you have to be remarkably quick to get a stroke, for that water is dropping astern just as fast as you are rushing ahead. And now for another phase of the physics of surf riding. All rules have their exceptions. It is true that the water in a wave does not travel forward, but there is what may be called the send of the sea. The water in the overtopping crest does move forward, as you will speedily realize if you are slapped in the face by it, or if you are caught under it and are pounded by one mighty blow down under the surface panting and gasping for half a minute. The water in the top of a wave rests upon the water in the bottom of a wave. But when the bottom of the wave strikes the land, it stops, 
while the wave top goes on. It no longer has the bottom of the wave to hold it up. Where was solid water beneath it, it is now air. And for the first time it feels the grip of gravity, and down it falls, at the same time being torn asunder from the lagging bottom of the wave and flung forward. And it is because of this that riding a surfboard is something more than a mere placid sliding down a hill. In truth, one is caught up and hurled shoreward as by some titan's hand. I deserted the cool shade, put on a swimming suit, and got hold of a surfboard. It was too small a board, but I didn't know and nobody told me. I joined some little Kanaka boys in shallow water where the breakers were well spent and small, a regular kindergarten school. I watched the little Kanaka boys. When a likely-looking breaker came along, they flopped upon their stomachs on their boards, kicked like mad with their feet, and rode the breaker into the beach. I tried to emulate them. I watched them, tried to do everything that they did, and failed utterly. The breaker swept past, and I was not on it. I tried again and again. I kicked twice as madly as they did and failed. Half a dozen would go around. We would all leap on our boards in front of a good breaker, away our feet would churn like the stern wheels of river steamboats, and away the little rascals would scoot while I remained in disgrace behind. I tried for a solid hour, and not one wave could I persuade to boost me shoreward. And then arrived a friend, Alexander Hume Ford, a globetrotter by profession, bent ever on the pursuit of sensation. And he had found it at Waikiki. Heading for Australia, he had stopped off for a week to find out if there were any thrills in surf riding, and he had become wedded to it. He had been at it every day for a month and could not yet see any symptoms of the fascination lessening on him. He spoke with authority. Get off that board, he said. Chuck it away at once. Look at the way you're trying to ride it. If ever the nose of that board hits bottom, you'll be disemboweled. Here, take my board. It's a man's size. I am always humble when confronted by knowledge. Ford knew. He showed me how properly to mount his board. Then he waited for a good breaker, gave me a shove at the right moment, and started me in. Ah, delicious moment when I felt that breaker grip and fling me. On I dashed, a hundred and fifty feet, and subsided with the breaker on the sand. From that moment I was lost. I waded back to Ford, to Ford with his board. It was a large one, several inches thick, and weighed all of seventy-five pounds. He gave me advice, much of it. He had had no one to teach him, and all that he had laboriously learned in several weeks he communicated to me in half an hour. I really learned by proxy, and inside of half an hour I was able to start myself and ride in. I did it time after time, and Ford applauded and advised. For instance, he told me to get just so far forward on the board and no further. But I must have got some farther, for as I came charging into land, that miserable board poked its nose down to bottom, stopped abruptly, and turned a somersault, at the same time violently severing our relations. I was tossed through the air like a chip and buried ignominiously under the downfalling breaker. And I realized that if it hadn't been for Ford, I'd have been disemboweled. That particular risk is part of the sport, Ford says. Maybe he'll have it happen to him before he leaves Waikiki, and then, I feel confident, his yearning for sensation 
will be satisfied for a time. The water that rolls in on Waikiki Beach is just the same as the water that leaves the shores of all the Hawaiian islands. And in ways, especially from the swimmer's standpoint, it is wonderful water. It is cool enough to be comfortable, while it is warm enough to permit a swimmer to stay in all day without experiencing a chill. Under the sun or the stars, at high noon or at midnight, in midwinter or in midsummer, it does not matter when, it is always the right temperature, not too warm, not too cool, just right. It is wonderful water, salt as old ocean itself, pure and crystal clear. When the nature of the water is considered, it is not so remarkable, after all, that the Kanakas are one of the most expert of swimming races. And so it was next morning when Ford came along that I plunged into the wonderful water for a swim of indeterminate length. Astride of our surfboards, or rather flat down upon them on our stomachs, we paddled out through the kindergarten where the little Kanaka boys were at play. Soon we were out in deep water where the big smokers came roaring in. The mere struggle with them, facing them and paddling seaward over them and through them, was sport enough in itself. One had to have his wits about him, for it was a battle in which mighty blows were struck one on one side and in which cunning was used on the other, a struggle between insensate force and intelligence. I soon learned a bit. When a breaker curled over my head, for a swift instant I could see the light of my day through, through its emerald body. Then down would go my head, and I would, I would clutch the board with all my strength. Then would come the blow, and to the onlooker on shore I would be blotted out. In reality, the board and I have passed through the crest and emerged in the respite of the other side. I should not recommend those smashing blows to an invalid or, or to a delicate person. There is weight behind them, and the impact of the driven water is like a sandblast. Sometimes one passes through half a dozen combers in quick succession, and it is just about that time that he is liable to discover new merits in the stable land and new reasons for being on shore. Out there in the midst of such a succession of big smoky ones, a third man was added to our party, one Freeth. Shaking the water from my eyes as I emerged from one wave and peered ahead to see what the next one looked like, I saw him tearing in on the back of it, standing upright on his board, carelessly poised, a young god bronzed with sunburn. We went through the wave on the back of which he rode. Ford called to him. He turned an airspring from his wave, rescued his board from its maw, paddled over to us, and joined Ford in showing me things. One thing in particular I learned from Freeth, namely how to encounter the, the occasional breaker of exceptional size that rolled in. Such breakers were really ferocious, and it was unsafe to meet them on top of the board. But Freeth showed me, so that whenever I saw one of that caliber rolling down on me, I slid off the rear end of the board and dropped down beneath the surface, my arms over my head and holding the board. Thus, if the wave ripped the board out of my hands and tried to strike me with it, a common trick of such waves... There would be a cushion of water a foot or more in depth between my head and the blow. When the wave passed, I climbed aboard the board and paddled on. Many men have been terribly injured, I learn, by being struck by their own boards. The whole method of surf riding and surf fighting, learned, is one of non-resistance. Dodge the blow that is struck at you. Dive through the wave that is trying to slap you in the face. Sink down, feet first, 
deep under the surface and let the big smoker that is trying to smash you go 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 by far overhead never be rigid relax yield yourself to the waters that are ripping and tearing at you when the undertow catches you and drags you seaward along the bottom don't struggle against it if you do you are liable to be drowned for it is stronger than you yield yourself to that undertow swim with it not against it and you will find the pressure removed and swimming with it fooling fooling it so that it does fooling it so that it, is, it does not hold you swim upward at the same time it will be no trouble at all to reach the surface the man who wants to learn surf riding must be a strong swimmer and he must be used to going under the water after that fair strength and common sense are all that is required the force of the big comber is rather unexpected there are mix-ups in which board and rider are torn apart and separated by several hundred feet the surf rider must take care of himself no matter how many riders swim out with him he cannot depend on any of them for aid the fancied security i had in the presences of ford and freeth made me forget that it was my first swim out in deep water among the big ones i recollected however and rather suddenly for a big wave came in and away went the two men on its back all the way to shore i could have been drowned a dozen different ways before they got back to me one slides down the, the face of a breaker on his surfboard but he has to get started to sliding board and rider must be moving shoreward at a good rate before the wave overtakes them when you see the wave coming that you want to ride in you turn tail to it and paddle shoreward with all your strength using what is called the windmill stroke this is a sort of spurt performed immediately in front of the wave if the board is going fast enough the wave accelerates it and the board begins its quarter of a mile slide i shall never forget the first big wave that i caught out there in the deep water i saw it coming i turned my back on it and paddled for dear life faster and faster my board went till it seemed my arms would drop off what was happening behind me i could not tell one cannot look behind and paddle the windmill stroke i heard the crest of the wave hissing and churning and then my board was lifted and flung forward i scarcely knew what happened the first half minute though i kept my eyes open i could not see anything for i was buried in the rushing white of the crest but i did not mind i was chiefly conscious of ecstatic bliss at having caught the wave and at the end of the half minute however i began to see things and to breathe i saw that 3 feet of the nose of my board was clear out of the water and riding on the air i shifted my weight forward and made the nose come down then i lay quite at rest in the midst of the wild movement and watched the shore and the bathers on the beach grow distinct i didn't cover quite a quarter of a mile on that wave because to prevent the board from diving i shifted my weight back but shifted it too far and fell down the rear slope of the wave so i will finish my reading of jack london there at that point and it was kind of a long passage but it was so descriptive and so vivid and i think so so well described that i think we can almost imagine old jack leaping up on his board his 75 pound his his 75 pound 1906 vintage wooden surfboard on Waikiki beach and riding it in from deep water 
into the shore. The author of White Fang and the Call of the Wild. <laughs> One can only imagine. And there's a few postscripts to this story. It's uh, it's very interesting. He talks about he was out uh, surfing for so long, he just was unmindful of the fact that the sun in Hawaii is very, very strong. So he was so sunburned that first day that he could not get out of bed the next day. He literally was so uh, sizzled and baked and, and, and scorched that even to move his limbs was an exercise in extreme pain. So he had to actually stay bedridden for a few days. And anyone who's been sunburned knows just how terribly painful that can really be. And um, But anyway, so I hope you enjoyed that reading from uh, Jack London's uh, The Cruise of the Snark his description of the royal sport of surf riding. And maybe you can try to listen to that and, and draw a mental picture in your own mind and get out of the present moment and try to cast yourself back in time to the to the glory days of Hawaii, back before it became industrialized, before it became uh, swamped with tourists and visitors and hotels and corporations. And he describes how Waikiki in those days the grass grew almost right down to the beach. The grass grew right down to the beach. And those those of you who have been to Hawaii can, can see that that still exists. The um, For some reason, the grass is, is uh, very resilient out there and, and grows very close to the shoreline. So that will conclude our podcast for today. Hope you enjoyed that reading. And until next time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.